Today in the garage, we have Phil Brown. Phil attended Dalhousie University and practiced criminal law as a sole practitioner. He has been counsel with the Practice Management Helpline for 12 years and has developed a series of technology podcasts with David Whalen. Phil has been a frequent speaker on ethics and professionalism topics and has a particular interest in the intersection of technology and its impact on the future practice of law. Through Zoom today, Phil spoke to us about ethics and the Law Society of Ontario's Practice Management Helpline. Whether you're riding the subway, playing your banjo, or deciphering an ethical dilemma, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Good evening. How are you, Phil? I'm good, thanks, Paul. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, you know, I've known you for my whole career. Um, you were one of the first people I met uh, that was in the trenches. And I know you've had a unique uh, career path. And I'd like the listenership to understand who you are and where you're at and the important role you're playing in ensuring that lawyers in Ontario that have ethical dilemmas can find solutions. Sure. Uh, I arrived uh, in Ontario with uh, a plan to uh, article, but no position. Um, and uh, I was lucky enough to uh, wander into uh, Pinkowski Lockyer back in the uh, late 80s. Uh, and they had just managed to beat about 45 pounds off their last articling student through stress uh, and uh, needed someone to fill his boots. Uh, so I went into an interview and 20 minutes later uh, had started articling with uh, Pinkowski's as it originally was. Well, we know that that was a great training ground. So many fantastic lawyers have learned so much and have contributed so much to the law and the development of the charter. It was it was a great place to start. Um, you know, you, you were thrown in uh, hands on and uh, one day you might be serving a summons or a subpoena and then the next day you'll be in court doing a trial so uh, it was a phenomenal experience uh, and uh, it was the first time I'd encountered meetings like they had on LA Law where you sat around every week and talked about everybody's cases uh, and as I learned later it was just so some of the lawyers could steal your case uh, because it was more interesting than theirs was going to be uh, and you'd get a call uh, on the morning of a trial and they'd say you know what I'm going to take your trial today you take mine. So uh, that was kind of fun too. So I, I know you also practiced as a sole practitioner and you did a stint helping out as duty counsel. Um, how did you enjoy those different uh, parts, uh, those different uh, parts of your career? That they were both great. I mean, duty counsel was a good start because I got to sort of learn all of the players and the courts and uh, which judges were a pleasure to uh, appear in front of. Uh, and which clerks you could touch for a, uh, a favor if you needed one. Uh, and you really sort of got the lay of the land. Uh, and it helped when I moved into private practice. Uh, and I found a good bunch of guys to, to hang out with. Uh, I originally uh, was uh, at uh, John Fitzmorris's space with Larry Muldaver and now Justice Matt Weber and Lauren Sabsay. There was a whole bunch of us uh, in this one spot. It was a lot of fun. And I know that you're at the Law Society. Tell us about the, the balance of your career path. So I, before I ended up at the Law Society, I was at the Legal Aid Ontario in the provincial office 
for five years and I helped do the rollout of the online billing, uh, which uh, everyone loved when it started because if you, uh, if you did a, an account within tariff, you got paid within 48 hours. Um, so I was there five years and after the rollout uh, transitioned over to the Law Society uh, and found a great space where I could do some uh, development of CPD programs, um, some ethics stuff with the practice management helpline, and I was doing some technology stuff as well. It's pretty much rolled into my position with practice management helpline, which is ethics pretty much five days a week. So let's talk about ethical lawyering. How do you describe ethical lawyering and what message do you have uh, to those that are about to embark on their career as lawyers? It's, it's really, I think, about respect and civility and, uh, you know, not rushing things. Uh, you know, there's, there's the rule about sharp practice. There's rules about integrity. There's rules about advocacy. And I, and I don't think any of them are opposed to each other. I think you can be a fierce advocate for someone. Uh, but still play within the lines and still achieve results for your client. Uh, certain things you can achieve and certain things you just can't achieve. Uh, but, and, and I'll say this about the criminal bar versus some of the other bars. Uh, it doesn't really matter how big the dust up is in court with the prosecutor. At the end of the day, I think in almost every scenario, uh, you're still civil to each other when the trial is done. And if you bump into them on the street, you still have kind words for them, no matter what transpires in the courtroom. And I think that's quite unique to the criminal bar. Uh, I know a number of other lawyers and other bars who just will not speak to or look at other lawyers. And I find uh, the collegiality of the criminal bar, whether it's on the prosecutor side or the defense side is, is a completely different sandbox. I'm glad you say that because one of the, the objectives that we've always tried to achieve here at the garage uh, whether through uh, our education series or through these podcasts is to ensure that uh, there's mentorship out there for everybody. I, I don't care if you're practicing as a crown attorney, a, a criminal defense lawyer, or you're doing a stint as a duty counsel. Uh, each and every one uh, has a part to play in the system and we should all understand what we're doing and get along. There's a difference between fierce advocacy um, and we know that it's not a tea party, uh, but at the same time, uh, you can be civil. When we talk about being civil, a lot of people don't understand what generally the lawyer's professional rules of conduct are. And for those that are thinking about getting into law, uh, can you help share with us the rules, where they find them, what's important? So when they're asked at that cocktail party, how do you defend this individual? Or if they ask them, you know, how dare you be a prosecutor and put people in jail? How do you live with yourself? They can easily understand and explain the role that we play within ethical bounds. Sure. I mean, the rules, uh, it's, it's funny because when I went to law school many years ago, we never really spoke about ethics. Uh, we never really uh, talked about the rules of uh, professional conduct. Even when I did uh, bar admission originally in Nova Scotia and then here, we just kind of touched on it. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't quite the way they teach it in school now and, and through the LPP, for instance. Uh, there, there's a real focus on the rules of civil, sorry, the rules of professional conduct uh, and the bylaws. Uh, I think there's a real focus now uh, 
so people are coming out of school much better prepared in terms of you know, what, what the playing field looks like, uh, how to be an ethical lawyer uh, than say 25 years ago. And uh, when you read those rules, um, sometimes they're not easy to navigate and there's a lot of co a commentary but no, uh, they don't necessarily give you the exact answer. Right. They give you good guidance though. And, and speaking of guidance, so there is the practice management helpline and I will say there's a bunch of other sources as well, but the practice management helpline, uh, nine to five, Monday to Friday, last year we dealt with more than 9,800 calls from lawyers uh, through every kind of practice. We get a lot of calls from criminal lawyers. Uh, from some very experienced, some brand new calls. And the idea is, you know, we will talk as long as you like about the rules and get some guidance from the Law Society. Uh, and then sometimes, uh, depending on the nature of the call, uh, there might be a discussion about how to practically apply uh, what the rule encompasses. Uh, and that's when I would invite someone to reach out to an experienced practitioner uh, either through the Criminal Lawyers Association or the Toronto Lawyers Association uh, or the Advocate Society to find someone that they can speak to who's dealt with this particular issue uh, in court or, or uh, and whether it's turning over a weapon or, you know, whether it's dealing with a client who's about to perjure themselves. I mean, I can, I can talk for days about the rules aspect, uh, but the, the rules aspect is pretty stark compared to how is this going to play out in court when I stand up and say, I can't ask any more questions. And everyone's like, I wonder why you can't ask any more questions. What's going on? Uh, and a judge may prompt you and say, can you tell us a bit more? And, and that's where you need that sort of practical experience from someone who's been out 20 years, who's dealt with that kind of thing before. And I really want to deal with two concrete examples that can assist people. And they're both in the area of evidence. The Law Society uh, a few years ago, and, and I'm only talking a couple of years ago, introduced the Murray Amendments uh, to the rules. And uh, it, going back to uh, many years ago, uh, when there was a prosecution against Paul Bernardo, uh, during the investigation, uh, there were some tapes that were discovered by his then counsel. And uh, there was a process that was followed and there was a lot of discussion and discourse as to how things should be dealt with. And now the Law Society in 2016 in the Professional Regulation Department, they finally uh, prepared amendments to the rules. And I, I really like to go through them. Because, sure. uh, it's so important. And at the end of the day, I know that when I read them, the one message that I have is when you get in that unique situation, whether you're a first year lawyer, you're an articling student or you're a seasoned criminal practitioner of 30 years, when you get in that uh, uh, position, the first thing you need to do is understand where you are and get advice. So can you help walk through it? Sure. So the rules in 5.1-2A, uh, which is the incriminating physical evidence rule, and it would include things like texts and emails as well, not just the bloody t-shirt or the the Glock that's dropped on your desk. Um, it covers all of those things or tapes found in a ceiling, for instance. Um, and I, I would say first, uh, consider what it is you're dealing with. The rule talks about, first of all, you don't have to accept any physical evidence from anyone. 
uh, and not to give anyone advice, but Paul, I'm sure you would tell a lawyer, if someone's about to hand you a bag and you don't know what's in it, don't take the bag. Um, you know, you want to know what's on a phone or you want to know what's in a bag before, uh, before you accept it into your custody, I think. Uh, but let's say, for instance, you have found that you're in possession of something. Uh, I think you need to call the Law Society. You review that rule and, and the commentary in 5.12a. Uh, talk to the Law Society. Get the Law Society interpretation about what you're dealing with. Call the Practice Management Helpline. Um, and if it's an urgent situation, you can self-select that it's an urgent call and someone will probably get back to you within an hour. Uh, our normal time frame is 24 hours, um, although usually calls are within an hour anyway. Um, and then the other thing is after that discussion, I think you probably should talk to an experienced criminal practitioner. Uh, I think uh, the CLA has a, a group uh, that's available for an ethical question. Uh, and they can refer you to someone, I think, quite quickly to talk about how does this unfold? Maybe it's a scenario where you're in a, you have a piece of evidence and you need to turn it over to the police. Uh, there's the whole uh, procedure of um, retaining a lawyer on your behalf to give the property to and having that lawyer turn it over to the police. There's a lot of practical questions about which police division do you give it to? You know, do you give it to a police officer in Thunder Bay, for instance, if it's a Toronto matter? Uh, you know, those are the kinds of questions you're going to want to ask someone experienced um, because that's not encompassed in the rule. Um, and, and I would say, you know, call the Law Society first, uh, read the rule first, call the Law Society, get that kind of framework before you start asking criminal lawyers, because you know, Paul, from sitting in a lawyer's lounge, if you ask three criminal lawyers a question, you'll get three different answers. You will get three different answers, but if you work with each of them, I think you'll get to the same result. The key is to reach out, document it, and uh, to ensure that you are helped through this path that you have to walk. I know that some lawyers do resist or, 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 or are worried about calling law site, and uh, they're going to take it, uh, obviously, with a grain of salt, because as a venture, I... I sure. I'm part of a law site and I promote it and uh, I know that they can call and their phones, will, their, their discussion on the phone will be protected, especially in this area. Uh, but uh, those that are reticent to call, make sure you call somebody. Call the CLA. Uh, absolutely. If, you're not, if you're not the CLA member, call a member of your local bar associate, association. Call a criminal lawyer you know. I know that in the past I've received calls and I know that these calls are not easy. For example, you may be in the midst of a trial and something's been sent to you over the internet and you didn't even know it was coming. And all of a sudden you open it and it's a piece of evidence that may also violate the law. For example, if it's if, it, if you're defending someone in a charge of sexual assault and somebody decides to send you a picture because they think it has some probative value, but it may uh, uh, involve a picture of someone in, in, in a certain way that may be under 18 years of age, you have an issue that you have to walk through. Um, As you pointed out, the, the, so the helpline is a confidential service. Uh, and, you know, so no one ever knows you called us to begin with. And it's something you put in your file. You've documented that you sought uh, some guidance from the Law Society uh, as well. I think if you talk to a, a practitioner, you want to do that as well. Document it in your file that you got advice and what steps you took after that. Exactly. And, and, and you we will do our best, whether it's uh, me acting as senior counsel or the law society, 
um, to ensure that we're doing what we believe is the correct process to follow. Um, it may be turned out, it may turn out later that uh, a, a lens on it four years from now might have a different uh, a view from, from a court, but they will always understand that the process we took was uh, part of good faith to ensure that we're within the ethical uh, limits of practice. And, and I, I always joke around that, you know, the, the, I know the Law Society has a reputation and I always joke around, hey, the Law Society is your friend. Uh, but I would like to say this, I mean- uh, Since I, I've been elected a bencher, it is your friend. There you go. I, I would like to think of us as, you know, I, I would say about 70% of our calls are from uh, people in, in firms of five people or less. And I would say, you know, think of us, at least the practice management helpline, as the lawyers down the hall for people who don't have anyone down the hall. That's a great uh, way to put it. You, you know, they can call us. Uh, we, we specifically, the helpline doesn't deal with anything procedural or substantive, but uh, the coach and advisor network does. So, you know, they can, we can flip them over to the advisor uh, network and they can get 30 minutes of, uh, of advice about uh, something procedural or substantive. Uh, we as lawyers pay a lot and, and paralegals pay a lot for annual dues. And uh, I know that I try to assist to ensure um, to promote the wonderful resources that are at the Law Society. Like you say, the uh, practice management helpline or uh, alternatively for mentorship. Um, you can get great guidance. Also, there's, there's the ability uh, to seek out um, private counseling. Right, and through, so, uh, through the uh, members of assistance. Right, so it's important that all lawyers out there that are practicing and even law students know that it's available to them. Now, I know that you're a fan of uh, the intersection between technology and law and confidentiality. And uh, I would imagine that the last several months since the onset of the pandemic, it must have been extremely interesting. Um, you know, I'm at home uh, working from my laptop or at my office. Life has changed uh, uh, tremendously, especially with the uh, uh, attendance on uh, different trial matters or court matters to resume. Uh, what do you see and, and, and what do you suggest uh, that uh, us as lawyers and those coming into practice should be conscious of? I think it's a really good time to do a review of what sort of procedures you have in place to keep uh, all of your information confidential. Uh, and I'll use a couple of examples. Um, most people I think are probably using uh, either Rogers or uh, Bell, uh, at least in the metro area. Uh, some might be using TELUS or some other, uh, some other provider. Um, all of those, and, and most lawyers are not by nature very techy. Um, you know, you get that uh, modem or a router put in your home, they set it up for you, you push a button, you plug your machine in or you use Wi-Fi, you reset the Wi-Fi password, uh, but most people do not reset the passwords on the box, the administrative password. Uh, and I will say this, if you haven't changed that password, your password for your Rogers box is the same as everyone else in the province. Uh, it's a default password. Uh, and if I can get on a guest network or get near your device, I can get in and watch all of the traffic on your router. 
Uh, I can tell you what movies you're watching. I can see the passwords going by. Uh, there's a bunch of free programs, Wireshark and a few others, where you can uh, just basically jump on and start reading material. So uh, I would say that's the first thing people need to do is if they have never changed the password on their machine, they should consider doing that, uh, whether it's home or office. Um, I mean, that's a big one for me. A friend of mine has a restaurant. He had a bell set up. He had a guest network. I got on his guest network. I used his admin password to get into his router. Uh, I got into a security camera system. I took pictures of him walking out the back of his restaurant late at night with a pizza. And I, and I sent them to him on a text. And he was like, how did this happen? And I'm like, it was simple. Uh, he didn't lock the door behind him, essentially, which was uh, changing that password. And I'm not, you know, I'm not your average hacker, right? I'm, I'm a guy who looks at a few things on the internet. That's it. And it was easy. Um, you know, Instapots now. I have an Instapot uh, and it has Wi-Fi, which I have not activated. Uh, but it too has a default password. So the internet of things, whether it's your Nest thermostat, whether it's your Instapot that has Wi-Fi, they all have default passwords as well. And if you don't change them, and I get into your instant pot because the default password is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, then I can get into your entire network at home. So whether it's a nanny cam or your instant pot or your Nest device, you have to change all of the passwords and make them strong ones and write them down somewhere. And it's so important to understand how the risk towards uh, solicitor client confidentiality cannot be at all put at uh, any type of risk. I know I repeated myself there, but uh, it's important to know that you can't uh, put solicitor client uh, uh, confidentiality at any type of risk. You, you uh, don't want to call 200 clients to say, hey, by the way, uh, your confidentiality has been violated. Uh, you should seek independent legal advice to see if you want to sue me. The uh, Law Society I know uh, is uh, working on uh, technology for the future and uh, is considering uh, in, uh, 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 creating a sandbox uh, for future technologies. Um, and I know that it's a work in progress. Um, with all the different technologies out there, what advice do you give about using the different types of technology, using the different types of client management software and uh, fearful of uh, protecting your clients uh, um, confidentially, confidentiality from intruders, including other state actors like the NSA in the United States? Sure. I, I mean, I think the big thing is, uh, you know, people need to read uh, two things. If you're signing up with a provider, whether it's Clio, Practice Panther, or whomever, I mean, you need to look at their terms of service and their privacy policy um, because it's important to know where your information is stored. Uh, it's, it's something you might consider adding to your retainer agreement. Uh, I know if you're doing a security certificate case, for instance, quite likely your client isn't going to want their information stored in a server in the U.S. Um, you know, uh, Clio, to my knowledge, uh, has never had um, a notice from the U.S. government to say, hey, by the way, we'd like to look at these particular files or we've seized them or whatever. And they've been in operation at least a dozen years. Uh, I'm not sure about anyone else, but they have a notice procedure if that happens. Um, I, I would say the important part is know what the tool is that you're using, know where the information is. 
Um, I don't think you're either any safer, whether it's an all Canadian server. I mean, if the right process is in place with search warrants and so on, the information is, is potentially susceptible if it's stored in the cloud. And I know a lot of lawyers will say things like, well, I'm afraid of the cloud. I don't want to use it. If you're using email, you're already using the cloud. So, you know, those emails are not stored on the computer that's physically in front of you. They're stored in the cloud somewhere and still vulnerable to uh, being opened by someone somewhere. And, and younger lawyers are, who are much more tech savvy than myself, uh, you know, uh, can very easily run a practice off of the laptop, have their uh, trust uh, accounting off of their laptop and be able to manage client files just simply through Dropbox. Um, and so that you have to be uh, really careful to ensure that uh, you are keeping your client's information private. There are undertakings as criminal lawyers that you have to sign. So it's not only keeping uh, uh, your client's uh, information uh, and their solicitor client uh, privilege uh, extremely private, but you, you don't want to violate any type of undertaking. You got to be careful whatever undertaking you're signing when you get disclosure. And we do have rules about uh, undertakings. And as you said, uh, you have to fulfill, fulfill every undertaking that you've given uh, and every trust condition. Uh, and uh, there are also, of course, implied undertakings if you look at the rules of civil procedure. And uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, a lot of people forget about that sort of pro forma, you know, undertaking they give when they pick up disclosure and then, you know, uh, someone might come by later on and ask for a copy of it, things like that. And, and you need to be aware of what that undertaking was. I just wanted to say real quickly about laptops. Uh, that is an important feature. You know, people are carrying their entire practice on a laptop. Um, I would suggest they consider instead of just a password, encrypting their laptop these days, whether it's file by file or whole disk encryption, it's very simple to do. Uh, if you're using a Mac or a Windows machine, it's a right click. Uh, you wiggle your mouse for a few minutes. You put in a strong, strong password. Uh, you write it down somewhere. And when you're signing in, you put in your strong password. Uh, it decrypts your hard drive and then you're back in business. But if you lose that laptop, you know, you've lost access to your trust accounts, which someone else may have. And often uh, yanking that hard drive out of your laptop uh, is good enough. The other thing they might consider is using something like LoJack for laptops. I think it's about 99 bucks for three years. Uh, and it will track your laptop if it goes missing. Of course, the glitch is that they have to get online and they often uh, don't get online with your laptop. But if they do, uh, you're able to locate it and you can direct the police to it. So part of our discussion today uh, involved, here's some things that you can do and you can get assistance from the Law Society and, and the Law Society can be helpful and they can be beneficial to you. Uh, but then there is the side of the Law Society that is uh, investigatory in nature. And what they do is uh, they may come knocking at your door. If the Law Society comes knocking at your door, what do you do? I, I think the first thing you do and, and uh... I, I know it. this is one of those things that does put a little bit of fear in people. When the Law Society calls you uh, or the Law Society drops by, uh, you know, you, you do need to cooperate. Um, I would suggest to someone, uh, if they get a call from the Law Society, call them back immediately or a letter from the Law Society. You know, if you look at all of the discipline decisions, 
one of the first things you see in almost every one is that they failed to respond to the law society or failed to cooperate with the law society, uh, as well as all of the other things that might be in that particular uh, tribunal case. And it's important uh, to reach out to them. Uh, there's certainly no harm in contacting a lawyer yourself if you know what the matter's about to find out what how you should deal with responding to the law society. <clears throat> excuse me, how to respond to the Law Society, but uh, don't put it off. Don't put it on the bottom of the deck. I'll get to that Friday or Monday or whenever. I, I'd say respond to them right away, at least to find out what it is they want, because they may not want much of anything. A theme, uh, a theme that uh, I'm going to try to lead through all of our conversation today is when there's an issue or when there's a question, reach out for help. If the Law Society comes calling, reach out for help. Hire Absolutely. Uh, let's go speak to a senior counsel. Uh, get some good advice, but don't uh, put your head in the ground and pretend like things are not occurring because that can only backfire on you. Uh, as you say, when you look at the different uh, case law that is out there, it can help uh, define what could happen. Um, when you uh, uh, started at the Law Society, because I, I think we can make a quick joke now about how People really are fearful of law society. I know that uh, sometimes uh, friends of mine that uh, would go to the restaurant uh, at the law society uh, uh, could stop by and use, uh, there was a, a guest phone uh, just off the security entrance and they'd pick up and call me and I'd see the law society on my call display and go, oh my God, what do I do now? Uh, hopefully you didn't do that when you started working at the law society. All your former friends or- So, so I, I have a friend- I have a friend that I call occasionally, and uh, if he sees Law Society, he won't answer the phone, uh, and he'll call me back and say, "Did you call me?" And I will always say no, <laughs> uh, because if he's not going to pick up the phone and I don't leave him a message, I want him to sweat a bit. Uh, but it's kind of a running gag with me that it, uh, I just he in particular I won't leave a message to because I know he's sitting at his desk looking at the Law Society calling, but he won't pick up the phone. Perhaps a little cruel, but. Anyways, that's why I guess uh, we're both criminal lawyers. Absolutely. We have, a, we, have, we have an interesting sense of humor. We have a distorted uh, sense of humor. Interesting. <laughs> um, we've been able to, uh, been we've been privileged to have an audience uh, that is uh, encompassed people from uh, Ontario, other parts of Canada. In fact, uh, North America and other continents. And uh, there are some people that are listening because it's interesting. You know, everybody um, wants to know what it is like to be a criminal lawyer or to practice criminal law in case they may one day want to pursue that as a career. Can you share some uh, interesting stories or thoughts for those that are thinking about criminal law and also share with us um, just, just how wonderful this career has been. It's, it's, you know what, it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's very rewarding. Uh, I will say that I miss court, but don't miss the driving. Uh, and now that we have the, uh, the COVID days, if I can put it that way, uh, you know, you can run a practice through the entire country from your sofa. So, uh, you know, that it seems to be a little more attractive now without all the driving. Um, you know what, it, it, 
I would have to say every case is different and every individual who's charged is different. Uh, and it's, uh, you meet so many people and, and you certainly get a little cynical from time to time dealing with uh, the same police officers and thing like that, things like that. And I will say this, at one point uh, in my uh, travels, I was dealing with a, an Asian gang crime uh, with the Asian task force, Asian gang task force, I think they were called. Um, and it was this long drawn out uh, prelim. And um, I was in the Eaton Center one day and uh, happened to watch some guy uh, chatting up a, a clerk. And at the time, uh, I saw a police officer come in behind me, started chatting with the guy at the counter. And the next thing I knew, they were having a big fight. And uh, I weigh, I don't know, 120 pounds soaking wet. And uh, so they were scrapping and he somehow managed to throw the police officer down uh, and ran past me to run out of the store. And I had zero time to think and I tackled the guy. Uh, and then the, the cop came along and grabbed him and we handcuffed the guy. And then five of these Asian task force guys came running in because they happened to be doing something in the neighborhood uh, as backup. Uh, and they didn't know my role in the event at the time. Uh, so they were making many jokes. They were walking over to me because I was just standing off to the side saying, look, counsel, we're all making our notes contemporaneous with the event. Look, we're all making notes. We're not comparing our notes with each other because they'd had a bit of a hard time with, there were 10 counsel in this. We were all giving them a hard time about their notes, uh, which were kind of fun. But anyway, uh, and then the, the poor cop who was on the ground said, oh no, he helped me make the arrest. Uh, and then, of course, I was featured prominently in the synopsis. My name must have been in there about 10 times uh, just because they wanted to embarrass me. But uh, that was one of my fun times uh, as a criminal lawyer. Interesting. I, uh, like I say, I, I love uh, working at the Law Society. I loved being a criminal lawyer. Uh, and uh, who knows what's next? I'm, I'm sure I'll love it, too. Well, I think you've had a great career. You've given it all to your clients. I know that uh, when you uh, came to Ontario, uh, you were in the trenches and helped uh, many people, helped the system, helped the legal aid system, and also helped uh, lawyers in Ontario continue to do that. We thank you for that. Thanks. Appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sethna and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.